Quite. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where the intersection of finance, technology, and policy come together. And I'm your host, Chris Brummer. The future of finance is now. As I mention to people all the time, one of the toughest parts of understanding fintech is getting the lingo down. And it's not just a matter of jargon. It's because people don't always agree on the jargon. And even where people agree on the jargon, they may still disagree on the meaning of the jargon. Perhaps there is no more important word in the crypto universe where this is the case as the term decentralization. Because for technologists, decentralization really refers to how new peer-to-peer architectures for data, identity, financial transactions are operationalized over a very diffuse ecosystem. For lawyers, however, the importance lies in the degree to which a holder of a cryptocurrency is faced with different kinds of information asymmetries vis-a-vis those who tend to wield more power and influence over the system. Now, these two visions and two interpretations or, or areas of emphasis when they're when they're using these words, create all kinds of challenges and problems, both within industry, between regulators, and certainly between regulators and industry. And as a result, uh, there's a lot of debate about what decentralization means, what it should mean, and how uh, both market participants and regulators are interpreting this. So I wanted to get down to the bottom of decentralization, and I thought that I could find no better crew of experts to talk about this subject than those who were participating on a panel I was moderating in New York at Crypto Evolved. So let's hear what they had to say. So Troy Freitas, I have my own consulting uh, practice focusing on financial services, corporate governance. And related topics, a good chunk of that is these days in the fintech space, and a good chunk of that is in the blockchain, digital assets, crypto, uh, currency space. Uh, I'm Moad Fami, I'm the senior advisor for fintech at the Bermuda Monetary Authority. Um, before that, I used to be um, a regulator for uh, securities in Canada and Quebec. Um, and uh, basically, the, the BMA, the Bermuda Monetary Authority, is an integrated financial regulator. So when we're discussing blurred lines, um, I guess we have the unique <laughs> perspective of you know, seeing the banks, investment, insurance, uh, um, and digital asset issues, as well as having some form of central uh, bank function where we issue the Bermuda dollar. So in a sense, the Bermuda dollar is a stable coin. So we have a team of economists that understand the intricacies of these types of products. So I think the term blurred lines is very real, and in my day-to-day job, uh, I definitely see it. I'm uh, Gary Goldshaw. I'm a partner at uh, Steptoe & Johnson. Maybe in, in contrast to what Moad just say, in terms of working at a unitary regulatory authority, my regulatory career um, spans four different regulators. Most recently, I was deputy director in the Division of Trading and Markets. Previously, I was general counsel of the MSRB. I was the vice president at FINRA and started off with the CFTC. So I think I come from a perspective of um, uh, sort of regulatory jurisdiction and a number of different either self-regulatory or federal regulatory agencies. I'm Lizzie Baird, and I am currently Deputy Director of Trading and Markets at the Securities and Exchange Commission. 
um, in that role, uh, all of the folks who are involved in crypto in the division report up to me. What a wonderful panel. I think uh, just to get things warmed up, we're going to start off with a very uh, easy topic and then to move into the more difficult ones with uh, what is the definition of decentralization. Troy, you have five seconds. <laughs> sure, five seconds. <laughs> who knows? Uh, I think it's the five second. Uh, answer. Let me just take one quick step back. You know, the reason a question like what's decentralization is so important because, is because we're still thinking through the what is it question. I don't mean the what is it in terms of decentralization, but rather the what is it in terms of the instrument. Is it a security? Is it not a security? And as we all know, the answer to that question is so critical because depending upon what it is, that's going to inform what the regulatory infrastructure, regulatory regime is that you trigger. Even if we conceptually understand what decentralization is, even if we conceptually understand how it fits into the analysis as to whether or not something's an investment in contract and therefore security or not, questions like, well, how much decentralization? At what point is something sufficiently decentralized and what's the process by which you go from day one perhaps being less decentralized today, you know, a thousand and one being now decentralized? Or if you talk about being fully decentralized, I don't know what fully means versus less than than fully. I think all these sorts of questions, I think, continue to need to be hammered out. And even though we've been thinking about this stuff for a long time, I do think there's still a lot of questions. I wish I had the single answer. Well, how does this concept fit from an infrastructure standpoint into the legal analysis for identifying a security? Uh, from Bermuda's standpoint as, as, as well, Maude, I mean, you've got experience and you have experience, on the one hand, working in a regime over in Canada, which is highly inspired by U.S. approaches towards what is a, a, a security and investment contracts, yes. to trying to now think through what it would mean in Bermuda. What does decentralization mean for you as you're putting together your uh, cryptocurrency regulatory approaches? Right. Um, so it's a good question. And as a regular, it kind of forces me to think, how, how am I going to be able to apply a regulatory regime to something that's decentralized? Um, so in Bermuda, we don't have this question of how we test uh, uh, investment contract. Uh, is not something that is part of the Investment Business Act. So we have this Digital Asset Business Act that technically applies to decentralized protocols uh, or organizations. And um, whoever says decentralization, and sometimes you might have the feeling that these people are using this term for deresponsibilization purposes, uh, but there are still people involved, right? So um, the idea behind our framework is that people who are looking to set up a digital asset business must come up with their own understanding and appreciation of the risks and uh, their mitigation measures. So if somebody were to come with a partially decentralized protocol or idea or ex exchange and seek um, um, a license, they would need to come up with some of the uh, answers themselves about what is it in their context that is decentralization, instead of forcing on the regulators to say, well, this is what decentralization is. Um, so we kind of take uh, the, the reverse approach. So technically, the regulatory framework applies to decentralized but, um, organizations, but it's not clear yet how this will happen in real life. Gary, what do you see in your practice as to sort of conventional understandings of what decentralization means, either from your clients, but also obviously with your interface with regulators? So my, I think my view of decentralization has um, been evolving. First of all, um, as I was preparing for this panel, 
I tried to do some research on decentralization as the concept might be applied with respect to the federal securities laws. So I went back in time and tried to look sort of pre-2017, and there's almost nothing there. From a network perspective, I think decentralization speaks to whether or not regulation can ultimately be effective. Because as a general matter, regulation requires there to be intermediaries upon whom regulations can be applied. And as something becomes more and more decentralized, the, the task of regulating, the cost of regulating, the effectiveness of regulating all seem to really become very strained. And I think if I look back in some of the difficulties in establishing that regime, as well as the intricacies in which the regime was created, kind of hard to imagine that being put together in a crypto environment on a global scale with an emerging set of assets. Lizzie. Uh, well, so first let me just say that, that the views that I express here today are my own. They're not the views of any particular commissioner or the commission. Um, so when we sit down to look at, at one of these uh, uh, cryptocurrencies, um, both the 33 Act and the 34 Act um, have definitions of what a security is. And so typically it's a couple of folks from the Division of Trading and Markets with a couple of folks from the Division of um, Corporate Finance. And when we think about decentralization, what we're thinking about is, is there a, um, uh, an entity or people um, remaining who represent the entity who are going to be promoting um, this thing, this security, this token, this currency going forward? And if indeed there are, under the 33 Act, they should be telling potential investors or current investors how they intend to promote it. And so let me give you an example of what we mean by that. So if you're sitting here and you're thinking of buying Bitcoin, um, there is not an entity out there or individuals out there who you probably think um, have some plan in the future for Bitcoin because they're marketing it or they're promoting it or they're somehow dedicated to raising the price of Bitcoin that have information that would make your possible purchase of Bitcoin more informed, right? Because it's so decentralized. As opposed to a different coin that, that might be considered a security where there are individuals who are gonna issue this coin and, and they're gonna kind of stay on board in some fashion where they have an interest in, in continuing to promote it and continuing to see its value go up. Um, and, and this will be expressed maybe before it's actually out on the market. It'll be expressed maybe in the way it's offered. And so that's the way we look at it, is, is it so decentralized that, that there isn't information that an investor would need before they purchase it? Or is it more centralized so there actually would be an asymmetry of information between the folks that are issuing it and will be continuing to promote it and the potential investor. And the, the disclosures under the 33 Act are designed to cure that asymmetry of information. Okay. I want to jump in. I, I uh, don't disagree with anything that you said, but one of the things that I recall though is, is there can be certain actions taken by external parties that could very much influence what the value is of a crypto asset, whether it's Bitcoin or something else. We saw a number of years ago, even the decision of a totally separate, maybe say disinterested um, market center to, to list 
particular product could have a significant effect on the price of that asset or certain other use cases. I do think there's the potential of third-party actors having that influence and creating information asymmetries. I think that's a, something that, that needs to be um, considered at some point. Um, yeah, I, I, I like the idea of you know, not using the word decentralization and just looking at the real governance and then um, looking at who controls what and what are the risks involved. So a lot of discussion has been around the disclosure and information asymmetry, but when you looked at the DAO hack and what happened after, you can look, even though this was a decentralized protocol, in the uh, de facto governance, there were maybe some people who were more influential and that could benefit from it. So um, how do we ensure that whatever governance is used in a protocol or an organization that needs to be regulated is proper uh, or fit for purpose, right? So we need to be thinking about the specific risks and not about the definitions. Troy. Yeah, I think sometimes the sense is, is that, you know, we look at it from the perspective of whatever lens we're bringing to bear, federal securities laws or otherwise, and say, oh, geez, if it doesn't fall within the scope of that regulatory regime, folks can do whatever the heck they want. Right. And the answer is, no, they can do whatever the heck they want. It just turns out that it's not a security, and so therefore you don't trigger the federal securities laws, or it's not a commodity, and so you don't trigger the Commodity Exchange Act, or whatever it happens to be. There's all sorts of regulatory regimes that may nonetheless apply, and I do think that, from my vantage point, is important to keep in mind, because it can guard against the following. We want to regulate it, so therefore we need to call it a this, or therefore we need to call it a that. The fact that we want to regulate and think certain regulatory objectives and interests are implicated just because it's not a this or a that doesn't mean it's not a lot of other stuff that then has to be uh, thought through. And I think the lesson for that for folks in the audience is, is just because it may not be a security doesn't mean you can say, oh, well, we can do whatever the heck we want. It's not a security. We're off scot-free. <laughs> well, no, no, no. That's not the answer. You may be a whole host of other things that you and your advisors need to then think through to make sure you're complying with those other regulatory regimes even if the federal security laws don't happen to apply. Uh, what is your perspective, uh, Lizzie, in terms of how one uh, should grapple with this concept of an exchange, since we're all here to talk about crypto asset infrastructures, and, and, and how does that relate to the, the lines being blurred between uh, market parlance and regulatory uh, scrutiny? Um, well, you know, we have a definition of what an exchange is, right? So, so it is defined for us under uh, Rule 3B16. It's a two-part functional test. Um, the two parts are uh, it's an exchange. Um, if the organization brings together the orders for securities of multiple buyers and sellers and uses established non-discretionary methods, whether by providing a trading facility or by setting rules under which such orders interact with each other and the buyers and sellers entering such orders agree to the terms of the trade. So if an entity fits there, it's an exchange. Now the, the area we see where it gets very murky is entities want to do trading or they want to host a platform. They come to see us and they claim to be bulletin boards. And, and in fact, they really are way more than bulletin boards. They're doing things that are beyond just being passive, for example. And we think of, when we think of bulletin boards, uh, we think of something more like Craigslist where it's just you, you are just hosting a totally um, passive place where, where you do nothing and, and entities interested in exchanging something might post something and then 
they, they transact offline. Um, and, and so we, we find that the blurring takes place between ATS and, and bulletin board much more than between ATS and exchange. Uh, uh, how do you go about distinguishing uh, yeah. those definitions? And yeah, no, it's, it's, it's um, no, thank you very much. It's a great question. So what I, you know, what I find a lot of clients coming to me is that they want to be an exchange or an ATS. They've, they've received a message somewhere through all the various enforcement or other regulatory actions that in order for them to be in this space and to provide a pool of liquidity in order to, to be in the position, they have to either become an exchange or then they quickly pivot to saying they want to become an ATS, which while not the same level of, of regulatory obligations um, or responsibilities as an exchange, still is, I think, quite significant. And one of the things that I've been counseling clients, I'm more than happy and, and, and will we'll serve that, but a lot of times I think it reflects maybe a misunderstanding of the way in which they can service the market. So I feel like um, there's a bit of an education in this industry as to the significance of these different categories. It's fascinating. I mean, you, know, you guys are building from the ground up an entire new separate regulatory regime for crypto assets. So, I mean, where does the definition building for exchanges fit in that process since uh, Bermuda is one of a number of jurisdictions who are, who are rethinking this? So we have a definition of exchange. I guess it's not that different from the definition of exchange that you'd find in the 34 Act. However, what changes is um, the obligations that we will impose on digital asset businesses are really gonna be dependent on the actual activities. So in the digital asset world, the world exchange is a little bit thrown around without necessarily being what we consider in the securities world an exchange. So the idea is that we will not get to bother with the definition as long as it falls into digital asset business. Then we'll look at the risks and then we will build tailor-made conditions. Uh, so it's really a, a risk-based regime. Does it become more complicated, uh, Troy? And I also certainly want to ask uh, Lizzie this particular question since so she's on the, on the front end of this right now. I think all of this analysis and analysis like this should not start from labels, mm. but should start from a word you're using, which is function, right? Which is what's going on? And I think, Gary, exactly to your point, right? Instead of somebody saying, I want to be an exchange, or I want to be an ATS, or I want to be a broker-dealer, or I want to be a this, I want to be a that. I think the discussion is, what's your business? <laughs> what are you in the business of doing? And what do you want to be in the business of doing? And what do you perhaps not want to be in the business of doing? And let that sort of an analysis then figure out, all right, what's your regulatory status? What regulatory regimes might you be implicating? And I think so often, and in some sense, I think it's a theme of, of this whole blurred lines discussion, is yep. so many of the discussions start with labels and one of the fundamental challenges there is, in addition to everything else, people often have a different meaning in their own minds as to what those words mean. And so we think we're having a conversation where we mean the same thing, and we have very different definitions, and we wonder why we can't seem to reach any sort of resolution or any sort of consensus. In 50 years, um, it has covered all but one one-thousandth of one percent of customer claims where there's been a broker-dealer dissolution. Whereas the cyber theft, just since 2014, Mt. Gox and forward, has been billions every single year, and I don't think any of those, those investors are ever gonna be made whole. So our challenge is, how do we import 
that kind of safety into the digital space. Uh, thank you to you all for such a wonderful panel uh, and, and again for your perspective. So now we're going to transition to our segment, Chris's World, where popular culture and fintech meet. So with the NBA's free agent scramble having dominated the headlines, you eventually get into a conversation about, wait for it, the greatest of all time. Who is Stephen A. Smith's top five in the NBA of all time? Wow. I, I'm really curious. Well, I, would, I would love well, to know the well, answer well, to that. For me, it's Michael Jordan. Yeah. It's Magic Johnson. Um, it's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Um, Is LeBron Tim, in there yet? Tim Duncan yeah. and LeBron James. That's or which of the perennial all-stars will one day vie to the Mount Olympus of sports at the NBA Hall of Fame? And the debates can be fantastic. He can guard all five positions in the NBA. I've seen him do it with my own two eyes. You've seen that? I have seen With that. your own two eyes. Correct. Uh, I never saw Michael do that, and I don't think Michael is capable of doing that based on his size and stature. So when we're looking for a tiebreaker, to me, that's the edge that LeBron will always have over Michael. And I know people will yell rings, but to me, that's where I stand on it. I'm gonna steal a lot and I realize that one of the reasons why these kinds of discussions are so cool is because they can't be answered. Okay, you got Kawhi, clearly best two-way player in the NBA. May not necessarily be the best offensive player, you know, but he's got mean handles, his defense, excellent. Then you have perhaps the best all-around player, LeBron James. I mean, his passing ability, his scoring ability, he can take it to the board, his shooting. But then you also have the best shooter in the game of all time, Steph Curry. So what exactly are the metrics? Well, no one knows, which is why the debates are so great. And I can't help but wonder whether or not the decentralization debate is similar. That you get into them, it's really interesting, it's really fun, but at the end of the day, it's not exactly the best framework for policy analysis because it really depends on a number of assumptions that you're using when you're even talking about the word. Now, my thinking is decentralization can be a really interesting way for exploring how some of these systems may operate. But I'm not exactly convinced that they're going to be the best framework for regulators. Instead, decentralization is often in the eye of its beholder. And if it was that easy, we'd already have the best of all times in the NBA figured out. Although, to be fair, that was Jordan. I'm Chris Brummer. Thanks for listening. We want to hear from you. Feel free to email us at fintechbeat at cqrollcall.com or tweet to at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. Join us next time on Fintech Beat, produced by CQ Roll Call.